Coming up today, the agony and ecstasy of learning to live with COVID, and we look at how gravity storage could help in the fight against the climate crisis. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Grace Brown. Hello. Amit Katwala. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Neil Young requested that all of his music be removed from Spotify in protest against its position on Joe Rogan, whose podcast has been widely criticised for spreading COVID misinformation. The Joe Rogan experience, which Spotify paid $100 million for in 2020, is one of the most popular on the platform. This is the week when the world found out that a rocket launched in 2015 by SpaceX, Elon Musk's space exploration company, has gone out of control and is on course to crash into the moon in early March of this year. Apparently it's not a big deal though, it'll only cause minimal damage to the moon. And finally, this was the week when Google announced a major shake-up to its advertising system as part of its plan to end the use of third-party cookies in its Chrome browser. So rather than tracking exactly which web pages you visit, the system, which is called Topics, will sort sites into broader categories that can then be used to target ads. Google says this will be better for privacy, but security experts are not convinced. I mean, you say it won't be a big deal, but it's a pretty big deal if, if you're the moon, I guess. I know. People I... like f- flying junk into you. I just feel bad for the moon in this situation. No one's thinking yeah. about the moon. Uh, condolences to the moon what did we learn this week matt reynolds i learned this week that some people can hear gifs it's a phenomenon that is called visually evoked auditory response and it's when people hear noises when they see a silent moving image so you might have seen this gif of a jumping electricity pylon well if you can hear a thumping noise when you watch that gif then you may be among the 20 percent of people who experience this phenomenon. Do any of you have visually evoked auditory response? No. No. Amit? When I see gifts, it just makes me want to scream. Is that a thing? Do 20% of people have that? It might be. Well, the reason why I found this out is because I do have this. And James, is because on on Slack, the messaging uh, platform that we use at work, there's a GIF that is a pair of eyes rapidly spinning, bouncing around really, really quickly. And in my head, that sounds like a very, very high-pitched kind of ringing sound, almost like you're, you've got a marble inside, a, um, like a steel tube or something. And I find that GIF extremely hard to look at because it makes a really annoying sound in my head. And I was like, does anyone else have that? And I looked it up and apparently it's, it's relatively common to, to hear sounds when you see GIFs. I mean, that's an emoji, just to be, just yeah, to be clear with our internet parlance. Well, oh, no. oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sure the phenomenon draws a line between <laughs> gifts and emoji. I'm, I'm sure that is the salient point in, in this fact of the week. It's, it's, it's because of the file format, right? <laughs> what do you mean? No, I was just making a terrible, terrible joke. <laughs> um, so I, a joke? I, that's because it was terrible. Um I, I don't have that, but I have something that's uh, in no way related but similar. Um, as a result of working remotely and using tools like Slack for 
so much of the past two years, I've caught myself pulling the face of some of the emoji I send. Like the parrot? Like my eyebrows. <laughs> yeah, like my eyebrows will kind of go up if I put a raised eyebrow uh, emoji. So I've kind of had to, um, I've had to learn to not do that because it's weird. Yes, Amit. Does this extend to the dancing parrot emoji with your face photoshopped onto it that we often use in the workplace? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I dress up as a parrot um, <laughs> and I dance around my home office uh, slash bedroom every time I use the dancing parrot emoji. Moving swiftly on, Grace, what did you learn this week? Um, so this week I learned um, through Matt Reynolds that humans are the only animals who have a chin. No other animal has a chin. And the weirdest part is that scientists don't really know why we have chins. There are some hypotheses that are out there, you know, that maybe we have it for chewing or that it's for talking or that maybe it's even for sexual appeal. Um, but scientists just can't really agree on one. And they think it might just actually be this kind of like incidental feature of evolution that has no real benefits for us. Hang on. I'm looking at pictures of gorillas scratching their chins <laughs> it's they have like a bone there but it's not technically a chin you know if mm. if you if you have a human and you peel off all the skin you'll s- still see the chin bone there but the same isn't true for other animals so on a technicality gorillas don't have a chin exactly well i think if i remember correctly the difference is is that all of animals their jawbone their lower jawbone slopes away from their teeth and in yeah. humans it, it slopes outwards and that's technically apparently the definition of a chin so yeah i mean i i agree gorillas do look quite chinny but apparently yeah as grace says underneath no chin to be found this is a scandal so scandalous <laughs> that let's talk about it no more amit what's our first story about this week our first story this week is about an interesting new technology for storing energy and very excitingly it involves news from the outside world because matt's been on a reporting trip that's right so in late september i took my first reporting trip for a really long time since the beginning of the pandemic and i got on a train to the very south of switzerland to meet some people at a company called energy vault and these people have been building a very tall tower that they think can solve one of the big problems that might stop us getting to net zero especially when it comes comes to the emissions from electricity production and this tower it basically looks like a few cranes mashed together so try and try and visualize this it's 75 meters tall And at the very top of this tower, there are six arms that stick out horizontally. So it's a bit insect-like. It's like he's got these six legs. And each of these arms holds these kind of grabbing sticks that are suspended beneath the arms on these steel ropes. And what the reason why I was going there in September and what I was watching was I was watching these grabbing sticks come down from the top of the tower and they'd slot into one of these dozens of tall concrete blocks on the ground and they'd grab these blocks and they weigh around 35 tons each and then these kind of grabbing arms would pull the blocks back up to the top of the tower in a few minutes the process is reversed and these blocks are dropped and they you know they end up being stacked at the bottom of the tower and this all sounds a bit strange it's a bit i don't know like lifting you know lifting and putting down lego blocks or blocks or something like that but what i was actually watching was clean energy being used and stored and then discharged back to the grid and it could solve a really really big problem that's facing the way we make electricity especially in the future it sort of sounds like one of those uh, funfair rides you know where you kind of go up and then get spun around at the top um the the problem that you just mentioned is 
the unpredictability of renewable energy, so things like wind and solar. So as the world switches to renewables, um, we're going to find it harder and harder to smooth out the energy curves and give people power when it's needed. So electricity grids that use a high percentage of renewables like wind and solar are really susceptible to sudden swings in electricity supply. You know, at nighttime when there's no solar power, or if the winds get really calm, that electricity generation simply disappears from the grid. And that's why grids that use these renewables still have to have fossil fuels to kind of plug the gaps. And actually, the opposite situation is also a problem, which I didn't know before I read your piece, Matt, that too much renewables can also be a problem. So in California, on kind of clear days with steady wind, the amount of energy generated from renewables can spike to 95%. But solar power peaks at midday, which is not the same time that electricity demand peaks, which means that the peak demand is usually met by gas power plants instead. And this is a really, really well-defined problem in renewable energy. And it's actually so well-defined that scientists have got a special name for it. Yeah, that's right. And we're we're already seeing this in parts of the world that have a lot of renewable energy and particularly solar power. And this is something called the duck curve. And this basically comes from a line that you draw on a graph if you're plotting the gap between electricity production or supply and demand over time. And the way that grids are designed basically means that having too much production and not enough demand is just as much of a problem as having too much demand and not enough problem. So we know if you have too much demand, but you can't supply that demand, you have stuff like blackouts. If you have too much production, you actually make the grid unstable in a slightly different way, and you also might cause blackouts. So our electricity grids really have quite a narrow window of matching up supply and demand. So getting this right is really, really important. And you can see this in certain places. So it's such a big problem that a state like California, which has a separate energy grid from most of the United States, has to pay other states to take its renewable energy away when it has too much. And the reason is, is that, you know, it seems silly to turn off a solar power plant or turn off a, um, you know, a wind turbine. And actually, it could be cheaper to just pay someone else to take your electricity rather than stopping and starting production throughout the day. And in Hawaii, which has even more as a percentage, uh, you know, has even more uh, renewable generation, this difference between peak generation and demand is much higher. And they call this the, the Nessie curve. So the kind of the vital part of that curve, if you like, the duck's neck or the, or the uh, Loch Ness monster's neck is this, um, this, this spike as, as demand goes up in the evening and it's not being... Uh, met by renewables. And this becomes even more of a problem when we start to have lots and lots of more renewables on the grid. So this is a challenge that other countries yeah, would be glad to get, right? If we've got, you know, if we've got lots and lots of renewable production, we start to have this problem about how you store and transfer energy. And the problem is, is that it's really, really difficult to store electricity. So you can't take excess renewable energy and you know, move it through time exactly, keeping it until we need it. And at the moment, because we don't have a good way to store electricity in a mass way, we fall back on fossil fuel power plants because you can always burn a bit more gas if your production falls, right? You can just kind of turn up the dial exact, um, essentially on the generator. And this means that because we've got all this fossil fuel uh, fired power plants to hand, that we're not really using that clean energy to advantage unless we have the storage that really you know, allows us to access all of that energy that's generated. So as we, as we kind of move towards a world where hopefully we'll get to 100% renewables, we're certainly not going to be building any more, you'd hope not going to be building any more kind of fossil fuel plants. We do need a way of smoothing this out, of storing this excess energy and then allowing it to be released when it's dark or there's no wind. So that's what this weird contraption you went to see in Switzerland does, but how exactly does it solve this problem? 
Yeah, it, it solves it in a way that is actually surprisingly basic. So let me take you through an example. Imagine you have too much electricity because it's a really sunny day. Well, what you can do is use the electricity to turn a motor that's at the top of this tower and that motor will lift a heavy block. This block can be made out of dirt, rock, concrete. It could be anything heavy. It doesn't matter. And you stack that uh, block up high or you leave it hanging. You know, you basically need to keep it somewhere high. Now, if you remember GCSE physics, you might remember that the concept of uh, gravitational potential energy. So basically, every object high up is a store of energy and that is proportional to this object's mass and its height. It's why if a book falls off a high shelf, you know, it comes down fast and it, it hurts you, right? Because it has stored energy that it's, that it's transferring as it falls. And that's exactly the same principle that's behind this tower of blocks. You've actually got lots and lots of energy that's waiting to be turned back into electricity. Of course, we need energy in a form that we can use it. A, a lump of coal is a store of energy, but it's not very useful, right? You can't use that to power your toaster. So we burn it and we use it to turn a turbine that spins a generator. And that's how you make electricity. You're transferring energy from one form, in that case, a physical form, into electricity. And it's the same with this. And in this case, the physical form is, is height, essentially. So to go back to our tower examples, you've got these blocks that are lifted up high. And that's, you know, around midday, they've been lifted up. And then when the sun goes in and everyone starts making a cup of tea, well, you don't have any solar power to supply that demand. So we need to access that electricity in some other way. And so what happens is that those grabbers that I spoke about, they pick up a block and they drop it. Actually, in quite a controlled way. It sounds kind of um, like it's going really fast, but it's like one meter a second. It's, it's, it's really quite slow. It's maybe, you know, not far off walking pace, something like that. And what happens is this block is being dropped in a controlled manner, it spins a generator because these steel wire wires are, you know, pulling, essentially pulling that same motor that pulled them up, but, but doing it in reverse. And spinning this generator generates electricity that then flows back out onto the grid. So you've got lifting the block up, you store energy, and then letting the blocks fall down, you're discharging this energy as, as electricity. And in all this lifting and grabbing, you, you lose a little bit of energy, right? Because you need to power the way that these arms move around and, you know, the, you know, friction takes some of the energy out of the process. But in the 30 seconds that it takes a block to descend that 75 metre tall tower, it actually generates about enough electricity to power a thousand homes. So you actually get, a, you know, a lot of electricity from this downward motion. Although this idea of using blocks and cranes and things like that to lift these blocks and drop them is new, this isn't a new idea, right? Like we've used gravity to store energy for a long time. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this, yeah, this this tower sounds kind of a bit high tech and, and newfangled, but really this idea of storing energy in mass and, you know, in mass and height is really, really old. And in fact, using this method is still the most common kind of stored energy and it's something called pumped hydro and that's essentially when you pump water into a reservoir and you release it through a hydroelectric dam so you can kind of see the philosophy is the same right you pump water up you, you make it higher and then you release it through a dam and this falling water turns a turbine that turns a generator that creates electricity and this is hugely hugely popular over 94 percent of all the world's large-scale energy storage is pumped hydro so you know it's, it's absolutely everywhere 
And a lot of this pumped hydro was built between the 1960s and the 1990s in places like Switzerland because they had loads and loads of cheap nuclear power and it was running overnight when demand isn't high um, and it provided lots of excess electricity. The way that um, you know, nuclear power works is you generally want to keep it running at pretty high capacity constantly, which means that actually a lot of the time you have excess electricity. So it's good to have pumped hydro because you can store it. You don't With nuclear power plants, you don't want to be turning them down and turning them up because you lose efficiency and it, and it costs a lot of money. Um, and of course, somewhere like Switzerland is naturally really, really well suited to pumped hydro because it's got lots of water. You've got the Alps, you know, it's literally in the middle of the Alps, and you've got mountains everywhere. So you've got loads and loads of height and you've got loads of locations you can put a dam. Um, and you also see, you know, a lot of pumped hydro in countries like the US. Again, they have quite a lot of, um, you know, water and you know, quite a lot of mountains. So, you know, natural places to put this. And this was a starting point behind Energy Vault, the company that built that tower. What they wanted to do was re- recreate some of these really useful attributes of pumped hydro. You know, it's really pretty cheap because water is, I mean, it's not free technically, but it is you know, pretty abundant and it's pretty cheap. Um, but they wanted to take those qualities and put it anywhere because obviously not every country has mountains, not every country has places that it can dam, but everywhere has land that you can build a tower. So I guess the question that I had when I was reading your piece was, how come it's taken so long? You know, if we've been doing pumped hydro for almost 100 years or more than 100 years, why has it taken so long for them to think of this? Like, what are the technical problems that this company Energy Vault have had to solve to make gravity storage a reality? Yeah, I, I suppose it's it's an interesting question. I, I, I suppose it's not really a technical problem that had to be solved to make this a reality, as opposed to a demand problem. You know, you only really have the need for pumped well you only have you only have the need for this type of storage if you have renewables and you have variable generation for a really long time since we've had um you know fossil fuel power plants and since we've had you know all these other um you know power plants that can constantly generate we haven't really had this flexible generation problem so although you had pumped hydro because that took advantage of nuclear power that'd have to run all the way through the night with other generation you could just turn it down right you can just if you don't want to burn so much gas you can turn off that valve and put less gas um you know into the furnace and so you save money because you're not burning that gas um so it's you know, the technicalities of it are actually like relatively simple. It's one of those ideas that is actually, you know, a little bit less difficult than it might seem. But let me describe how it works, because there are some, you know, technical challenges with how you how you do this. And, and the tower that I visited is kind of the first version of this technology. And it's probably not the version of technology that we're actually going to see out in the real world. But it's a good example of why, you know, maybe some of the drawbacks of this approach. So, how it would work in, in, a, in a full-size tower, which would be much taller, you know, well, theoretically maybe 150 or even taller, what would happen is these blocks would be lifted and then they'd be stacked on top of each other in concentric rings. So you can kind of imagine um, almost like Lego blocks being built around a, you know, a central crane. And the idea was that when this was fully stacked, this tower would have about 7,000 of these blocks, 7,000 35-tonne blocks. But there's a big problem with that. And for a start, it's because a fully sized tower would weigh about 250,000 tons. And that's nearly half the weight of the Burj Khalifa. So, you know, it's extremely, extremely dense. You know, we're talking about 
although it wouldn't look like one, we're talking about in terms of construction, something that had the footprint and the weight of a very large skyscraper. So it would need extremely deep foundations to keep it stable. And also it would just be tall, right? It'd be pretty difficult to have in an urban area. And also there's this other problem that, you know, to keep costs down, you want to stack these concrete blocks open uh, out in the open. That's great because all your core materials are cheap. Ch- cranes are pretty cheap. Concrete blocks are really cheap, especially if they're made from, um, you know, combining dirt and other things that is basically waste material. But the problem is, is you can't use that in areas that might have snow or rain that could turn into ice or even sand, because if these got between the blocks, it would make it really, really hard to stack them. And really, all of these problems that I think really became quite clear quite early in this process meant that the Energy Vault team has switched to a different idea. And and this idea is they're putting this system inside big modular buildings that aren't exposed to the elements. So imagine a kind of, it's really a skyscraper. It's about 100 metres tall. um, And it would contain thousands of these weights. They wouldn't be stacked. They'd basically be lifted vertically, almost like they're on Uh, lifts or elevators and then they'd be stored at the top of the building but this would be a very tall but also very wide and very long building it almost looked like a a huge warehouse yeah we we were talking i mean there there are kind of several issues with the technology and and, but one of the main ones you're one of the main reasons i think you seem pretty skeptical about this technology is that (laughs) just the sheer size of these proposed buildings right yeah exactly and i think that obviously this is quite an elegant and simple solution yeah, in one way of thinking about it, but as soon as you bring this inside a building, you are talking about an extremely large footprint building. So a system that could provide about enough power to power around 100,000 homes for 10 hours, it'd have a footprint of around 25 to 30 acres, and that's about 37 football pitches. So a really, really um, you know, large amount of ground. And don't forget that we're not just talking about um, you know, something like a solar array where it's just kind of on the ground. This is for a building that's 100 metres high. So that's 30 storeys. Or you know, if you're in London, it, it would be more or less within the top 100 tallest buildings in London. So it's the size of a small tower block or a small skyscraper. So they've basically gone from a design that is you know, bare bones outside, um, you know, using waste material to something that is essentially building a, a very, very huge building, perhaps in a part of the world that isn't necessarily near other infrastructure. And this means that they're probably going to be pretty expensive. I mean, we don't know how expensive exactly, but probably more expensive than the tower design. And this is a problem because be, to be economical, you have to be able to compete with fossil fuels, which we know are really cheap. And some of the analysts I spoke to basically say that building a big building is not necessarily the cheapest way of doing this. And if you can't convince people to come on board because it's cheaper to store electricity and then you know discharge it later than it is to just you know, burn fossil fuels and just pay more to you know, put more coal into the furnace or put more gas into the furnace, maybe this won't quite uh, be as big a solution as its you know, creators hope it will be. So from the people you spoke to, what do they think this is actually going to be useful for if it's not going to be used for kind of balancing the grid and making sure that your evening cup of tea is using solar power even though the sun's not out like what who's actually interested in this technology who are the customers for energy vault at the moment yeah at the moment a lot of their potential customers essentially operate heavy power hungry industries that are quite hard to decarbonize so these are things like mining um, desalination which is taking the salt out of seawater 
um, creating hydrogen. All of these things use lots and lots of energy. And also the processes that you want to work around the clock, right? If you've got a, a desalination plant, you don't necessarily want to shut it down at 5 p.m. and say, great, we'll you know, turn it on again at nine o'clock in the morning. You want to keep it running around the clock so it's as efficient as possible, just like um, a nuclear power plant. And we're kind of seeing this, right? A lot of these uh, deals that Energy Vault have either signed or on the verge of signing are with these kind of big, heavy industries. So they've just signed a deal with a Korean zinc smelting company, which has a metal refinery in Australia. And I think the idea for a lot of these companies is they, they're looking for a way to reduce their carbon footprint. And one way to do this is to generate their own renewable energy. If you think about a zinc smelting company in Australia, it probably has sites that have a very large footprint and it's in part of the world that has very, very good um, you know, solar energy resources. So why not build on-site solar panels? It's quite, a, you know, quite an obvious thing to do. Same for companies that are doing you know, desalination in Saudi Arabia. You know, land is plentiful and sun is plentiful, so it makes sense to put renewable energy there. But of course, if you want to run your factory around the clock, then you might need storage to help eke out the benefits of that renewable energy. So we're seeing that a lot of these first customers are actually not necessarily electricity providers, you might expect, but they're, you know, heavy industry is looking for a way to you know, reduce its carbon footprint, essentially. Although we've kind of said, okay, well, maybe this won't be useful for kind of grid storage for general electricity generation. There is one attribute of this technology that is quite useful, and that's the ability to deliver a lot of electricity in a very, very short amount of time. You can imagine by adjusting the speed of the block dropping if i'm uh, hopefully i'm right here matt you can kind of really like give a big spike of power to the grid but that could be quite useful as well right yeah that's exactly right and this is one of these things that i didn't understand when i started this um story i really thought well it's about you know supply and, and you know how do we move energy through time we've got no generation at night so how do we store it and discharge it at night and that's what we've talked about so far we've talked about shifting energy through time you generate the electricity when the sun is high, you store it and you discharge it at night. But what I learned doing this story is that that's not the only thing that we need to keep our energy grids functioning. In fact, it's also really, really important that we have second to second and minute to minute injections of electricity to stop things going wrong. And this has to do with something that I kind of hinted at earlier. So mismatched supply and demand. And basically, if there's a sudden dip in supply, so for instance, a cloud passes over a solar panel array and suddenly those solar panels go from producing you know, gigawatts of electricity to maybe nothing at all, or maybe you know, just a few megawatts or something like that. This can cause blackouts or you know, it can damage equipment because the grid really requires a, a pretty precise balance, uh, you know, it, which gives it a stable frequency to run on. And so the way that at the moment the grids hedge against this is that we have fossil fuel power plants, which basically because you are literally turning um, a huge turbine that is you know, connected to generators, it provides m- momentum that keeps this frequency regulated and keeps it going. And like I said, you can also quickly ramp it up by burning more gas if, you know, for instance, a solar panel array kind of falls off, off the grid. But of course, We'd rather not keep these fossil fuel power plants on hand just to run in this way. Bearing in mind, if you want to ramp them up, your fossil fuel power plant probably already needs to be on. So it probably needs to be burning. So you're burning uh, fossil fuels just to have energy in reserve. But gravity might provide a way out of this. And a Scottish startup called Gravitricity is doing something quite interesting in this respect. So they want to drop weights down mine shafts as a way to smooth out these changes changes 
in frequency. And what they say is they can respond in less than a second to frequency changes. So, you know, um, yeah, a, a, a wind turbine stops working or something and there's a signal that's sent through the grid and it says that we need an injection of power right now. And what happens is almost instantly they start dropping this weight and it brings this power onto the grid and that gives you enough time so you could bring either other storage is slower to respond or you can bring some you know fossil fuels online to provide this kind of gap and although that sounds like quite a niche use case and it's not like this is happening every hour or every minute of the day it's quite important for gravity because power networks pay a really really big premium for companies that can respond quickly because they provide these short bursts of power and actually these short bursts of power are the difference between blackouts or you know having power so this frequency regulation part of the market is probably going to be pretty important for something like gravity storage. Maybe it's me being slightly uncharitable, but I kind of think of this as a solution looking for a problem, right? And these kind of companies have attracted a lot of investment, but gravity isn't the only thing that's being looked at in this kind of balancing out the grid space. There's molten salt, compressed CO2, carbon-based supercapacitors, all these kind of different technologies and plans that are attracting a lot of interest, a lot of media coverage and a lot of investment. But Actually, we already have a technology that can store a lot of energy and deliver it to the grid quickly. And actually, Matt, most of the people you've spoken to think that the technology we we need for this already exists. We already kind of have our silver bullet for this balancing problem. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I know maybe it's a little ironic because we've just spent, you know, 15 minutes talking about this fancy new technology that, you know, you know, might change the world. But in reality, if we're looking at energy storage, especially at a grid scale, well, almost all of the new capacity that's being added to the grid is being built by lithium ion. So this is exactly the same batteries that you have in electric cars and in your phone. And really, this is because the price of lithium ion has just plummeted over the last couple of decades, something since 1991, it's gone down by something like 97%. You know, it's so much cheaper than it used to be. And this is largely due to the electric car market, because companies like Tesla are churning out, you know, gigawatts and gigawatts of batteries. And obviously, at the moment, we're putting those in cars, but they could also be really useful to store electricity on the grid. And a lot of the analysts I spoke to, essentially expect that lithium will make up the bulk of our demand for storage. And that's because they think that the cost will keep on dropping. And also, as a need for more storage emerges, this is the technology that people will reach for. It seems natural, right? It's there, it's available, we know how to work it, we know how to connect it to the grid. And though there are some problems with extracting and recycling um, lithium, which I mean, you've, you've, you've written about at length, it's generally seen as the, you know, the energy that is ready to stand up. So the people that I spoke to said, well, if we're talking about the future of energy storage, you can probably expect that lithium might be 80 or 90 percent of our storage globally. But all these other technologies, like you mentioned, damn it, like, you know, supercapacitors, like compressed salt, like, I'm sorry, molten salt or compressed CO2 and gravity storage, they might have a bit of a patchwork that make up all of these slightly different edge cases, like I spoke about, you know, desalination and hydrogen creation. So you'd have this kind of patchwork, but really it seems likely that the bulk of energy storage is still going to be those batteries that we've you know, already got on our phones and laptops and we're already really used to using. Yeah, it's really interesting. We were talking yesterday about this story, Matt, and I think what we kind of, what, well, you, the, a good point that you made was that this is really about economics, right? And, and although lithium is, uh, you know, only kind of exists in easily extractable form in certain areas of the world and there are problems with extracting it, it's not fundamentally scarce. So, you know, as demand for lithium goes up, it will become more and more economically viable to extract it from seawater or from other places where it might be might be hidden away and that will 
you know, naturally then mean that there's more lithium available. So it almost solves the problem and we may not need technologies like gravity except in these niche industries that we spoke about, like mining or things like that. Um, I'd be really interested to see what listeners think about this. Do you think the future of energy is something complicated in science fiction like nuclear fusion or is it as simple as just dropping big rocks? Let us know what you think at podcast at wired.co.uk. Our second story this week is about the weird next phase of the pandemic, which is that the pandemic is over, sort of. Since January 27th, England has dropped pretty much all of its measures against COVID-19. Anybody can walk into a shop without wearing a mask. Work from home guidance has been scrapped and all needs for any kind of vaccine, passport or certificate, they've all gone away too. England will be the most open country in Europe, according to Health and Social Care Secretary Saeed Javid. So... Where do we go next? Because England isn't the only country taking this decision, right, Grace? That is correct, actually. A bunch of other European countries are doing pretty much the exact same thing. Um, in Ireland, they've dropped pretty much all of its restrictions except for mass requirements. Uh, Denmark is eliminating pretty much all its measures from February 1st. And a bunch of other Nordic countries have signaled that they will also do the same in the coming weeks. And the Spanish government is urging European countries to consider the possibility that COVID-19 can now be viewed as an endemic disease. So basically, that means that all these countries are kind of declaring, you know, whether it's premature or not, that's up for debate, that the worst of the pandemic is now behind them. They're saying it's time to get on with it and that we have to learn to live with covid Obviously, not everyone thinks that's a good idea. The World Health Organization has warned that new variants are likely to emerge and that the pandemic is nowhere near over. But whether it's a wise decision or not, it's happening. Let's leave the question of the wisdom to one side for the purposes of this story. This idea of living beyond like the end of the pandemic it's not even the right way to put it but it's something that we talked about with friends and colleagues and pretty much anyone quite a bit over the last few weeks or months or or couple of years and we're all to different extents grappling with this question of how we'll cope or what it will feel like what does normal feel like after two years of not normal i think in the uk speaking to to all of you guys and, and friends and family, everyone is going out and starting to live their lives as they did before. Are people finding it weird, uncomfortable? Is it causing them any strange thoughts or feelings? How, how are people approaching it? I think for me, my life looks so different now to what it did before the pandemic. I mean, maybe we're in this weird limbo period where things haven't quite gone back to what we think of as normal, but I, I don't think any of us think that life will ever return to what exactly what it was before so I find now that when I go into central London or when I get the train to work I feel I do feel a bit weird about it I think I still keep my distance from people to a greater extent than maybe I did before I think when I go into a pub uh, and there's a four deep queue at the bar I you know I feel a bit apprehensive but I still go you know what I mean I kind of think that you sort of (laughs) have to go with the prevailing current regardless of what your personal sort of fear factor is at this point because otherwise I, I don't see what the alternative is at this point from an individual point of view obviously I'm lucky in that I'm triple vaccinated and I'm not in an at-risk group so you know that obviously feeds into the calculations as well um but yeah that's my view on it anyway I think I've had um a few moments in in recent weeks taking my kids to natural history museum in central london going to a couple of pubs that were 
not just fairly busy, but very busy. You sort of get to that moment where you're at the threshold of doing something that you really haven't done for a very long time. And a little voice in your brain goes, oh, dear God. And your legs just walk you in there. And then you're there. And all of a sudden, well, it's fine, isn't it? Um, There's people to talk to. It's normal life. It's good. But there's that weird moment, whereas before you wouldn't have thought twice about going into a museum or a bar or whatever. Now, there's this little nagging voice in the back of your head going, what? And then all of a sudden you're doing it. And I'm not sure how long that's going to persist for, but I kind of have to, to a degree, G myself up to go and do things which before would have been something that I would have done without a second thought. How about you, Grace? Yeah, for me, even when I'm thinking about like my life now, you know, I think when I'm thinking about returning to what it was before, it doesn't feel, I think I'm really, really struggling with the thought that, you know, this is actually maybe potentially over. I think, you know, so many times we've come out of lockdown before and it's meant to be the end and it hasn't been the end. So I think I'm still kind of holding my breath in that regard. But, you know, if I were to kind of force myself to think this is, you know, what life will be like for the foreseeable it's taking me a while to come out of that pandemic shell that I've been in and we'll talk about it a bit later but I think I'm almost like mourning this pandemic version of myself you know not that it was a good thing you know but it has been the way my life has been for the past two years or so and now I'm kind of reconciling with the idea that maybe I should be coming back to this former version of myself where is that person even alive um yeah and that manifests in a ton of ways you know I'm just like not used to seeing people regularly and not used to going to the pub regularly um am I forever changed or will like that former version of myself come back slowly and this is something that you've spent um a lot of the past week talking to professionals about to try and understand all of these different but linked feelings that people are having about this return to normal after a couple of years of really really strange times and there's there's a word that the piece that you've written focuses on which is trauma yeah so you know obviously all of us have been changed forever by this pandemic but one thing that a lot of the media has been trying to dub the pandemic is this kind of collective mass trauma event and you know thinking about it you can kind of see why it might feel like that it has been an extremely upsetting time but the word trauma you know it carries a lot of weight and I spoke with this one expert um, George Bonanno who is a clinical psychologist at Columbia University and he really hates this terming that this has been a collective mass trauma event you know he thinks trauma is this word that is getting tossed around all the time way too lightly when really it is this you know clinical condition that should be taken very seriously And he actually wrote a whole book about this called The End of Trauma, where he makes the case that humans are actually much more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. And in his opinion, he reckons that most people are actually just going to welcome this return to normal or, you know, whatever this new normal looks like. But for many people, all of that is absolutely right. But for many people, it has been traumatic. And this is probably going to be quite a big issue as we continue to put substantial strain on health services to deal with really, really high case rates, even as society returns to quote-unquote normal. Yeah, exactly. Like, he he recognises that, you know, 
while it hasn't been a collective mass trauma event for everyone, it's definitely been traumatic for some. You know, take healthcare workers who have had to borne the brunt of caring for patients and have had to see people suffer and die. And they're reporting record levels of post-traumatic stress disorder. The Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK um, did some modelling and they found that 40% of intensive care staff have symptoms of PTSD. And it's not just healthcare staff, you know, people who had to go to the ICU and who were put on ventilators, they found that 35% of those patients also were displaying symptoms of PTSD. Um, And, you know, when we look back to maybe similar examples, such as, you know, other epidemics, like the SARS epidemic of 2003, for example, um, a lot of people coming out of that also had PTSD. One study conducted in Hong Kong looked at chronic PTSD rates among survivors of SARS about two and a half years after the epidemic. And almost half had PTSD at some point after the outbreak and over a quarter were still suffering with PTSD at the 30 month mark afterwards. Um, Another study also found that PTSD was the most common long-term psychiatric condition amongst survivors of the SARS epidemic. And you take SARS and you scale it up to COVID-19 and you've got a very, very large problem that needs looking at um, with a lot of thought and care. But aside from that, another thing that Bonanno does point to, which again, I think is super relatable, albeit less serious, but more widespread, is this feeling of stress and anxiety that a lot of people, um, you know, inside out the health and social care setting, but across the world have felt over the last couple of years. And a phrase that you pick out separately to that, Grace, is this idea of cave syndrome. So yeah, cave syndrome is this idea. It's It was coined by a psychologist and it's not exactly a medical term, but really refers to this kind of phenomenon where a lot of people kind of want to stay locked inside for longer, you know, whether that be because they've grown accustomed to staying inside or for a lot of people, you know, they're just afraid of being infected. Um, And even for myself, I feel like I've really grown accustomed to this kind of hermit lifestyle that we've all been leading for the past two years. And the idea of, you know, venturing outside does seem really scary. And beyond that, maybe a little bit more seriously, there is evidence that all this anxiety and distress for the past two years has actually translated into clinical manifestations for some people. Um, You know, there's data that shows that rates of depression doubled in the UK in early 2021, and also reports of anxiety and depression symptoms also rose dramatically in the US. And another thing that we're grappling with as society opens up is our inability or how difficult we find it to understand risk. So we've all been way too close to big scary numbers like the number of cases per 100,000 people, daily death tolls, one in in every 20 people in England having COVID and so on and so forth. We're not used to thinking about mortality or even just disease in that way. I mean, we might have in the past heard that the NHS was having a particularly bad winter, but we weren't pushed right up against the numbers and we didn't contemplate what that actually meant in real terms and as a result that kind of makes a decision to go out for dinner or not a bit of a different proposition than it was before yeah exactly you know like our governments are saying we are in this endemic phase of the pandemic and that we have to learn to live with covid and that we should all be leaving our homes but the reality is that covid is still very much here with us Um, So re-entering life as we knew before is going to feel a lot different than it did. 
you know, before the pandemic, like you said, going out to dinner or going to the pub, your biggest risk was basically, you know, the next day's hangover. And now it's going to be catching a virus. And if we're truly entering the endemic phase of the pandemic and we just have to get used to living with COVID, we're also going to have to get used to doing these kind of daily risk calculations. And we know that COVID is likely never going to go away. And so the risk of catching it is never going to be zero. But obviously, you know, we have to acknowledge that vaccines and new treatments help massively. But living with COVID is going to mean having to do these kind of risk daily calculations for the foreseeable. And as if to make a point, since we started recording the podcast today, an email's landed in um, in a few other inboxes saying that someone who was in the wired offices this week tested positive for COVID. So it's 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 a reminder that it's not normal. Um, and you know, for for anyone, um, uh, everyone's being asked to do lateral flow tests to make sure that that they didn't pick it up as well. And that's sort of where a lot of countries and millions of people are at. It is the pandemic. The pandemic is quote unquote over, but it isn't right. Um, and it's different rules in different places. There are a lot of countries um, with very low levels of, of vaccination. And even in countries with very high levels of vaccination, the removal of all restrictions is having the inverse effect on people who, through no choice of their own, have basically no protection against COVID and perhaps never will. Yeah, so for this piece that I wrote, I spoke with this guy, Nick York. Um, Nick is in his late 50s and he lives in the Midlands in England. And for about over a decade, he's been living with um, this cancer called chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is basically a cancer of the immune system. And him having that means that his body doesn't mount any response to vaccines, which means he basically has no defenses against most pathogens, including COVID. So what does this mean practically for York or any other people who are immunocompromised? So when I was speaking to Nick, you know, this declaration that society is going to have to live with COVID and that all the restrictions will be dropped, it basically means for him and for other immunocompromised people that it's going to be living without them. With no mask requirements, it means that Nick can't really leave his home, he can't go into the shop, he can't travel, he's been forced to spend the past two Christmases alone, and he's not even really able to see his own daughter. And, you know, from speaking to Nick, he describes himself as pretty resilient, but this is really getting to him, you know, he feels forgotten about. Um, And it's really important to remember that, you know, this opening up, however freeing it may feel for most of us, it's not going to be as freeing for all of us. I think that's a really, really important reality check as we grapple with the circumstances that we're presented with. It's really, really important to remember that this isn't an opening up for everyone. Um, I wanted to end on this question of collective action versus individual responsibility. Many of us throughout the pandemic have recoiled at the idea that our response to the pandemic as a society would ever come down to individual responsibilities. You know, it was about following the rules rather than doing what you thought was best. And now that's flipped, right? The way that this phase of the pandemic is being presented to us is you have to decide what's best for you, pretty much. How do we all feel about that? Well, I I guess I would raise the point that not all collective actions happen moment to moment, right? The the majority of people in the UK have chosen to be vaccinated. 
hopefully got three vaccinations, had a booster as well, which is what provides us hopefully lasting, well, not necessarily lasting protection, but certainly ongoing protection. So I guess one point I'd raise is that there are effects of collective action that are ongoing. And then, you know, reflecting on Nick's situation, which just sounds absolutely terrible. um, To me, I guess that really underscores the responsibility that people have to get their vaccines and do everything they can to not be someone that gets COVID and transmits COVID. And I think, you know, certainly when it comes to, you know, individual mask wearing and do you wear a mask in this this, this particular situation or that particular situation? Yeah, I, I suppose that's a little bit of a... Uh, yeah, I can see how that'd be maybe kind of divisive on like a person-by-person person basis. I, I guess it's also hard to say in a situation where you know, slightly in the future where we don't have so much transmission or high disease burden, does it make sense to require that from everyone? Maybe also no, but I certainly think it makes sense to require everyone to get a vaccine if they are able to, to, um, you know, minimise that transmission and, and take that response. So I guess I would say that it's not all individual responsibilities too. There are some collective effects that are still in in place and one of the biggest collective effects perhaps is putting pressure on government to make sure that vaccines are provided to other countries because it might be you know we're considering this in in the uk context but there are lots of places in the world where their adult vaccine coverage is you know 10 percent less than 10 percent. so i think that that's a huge picture that we need to be thinking of globally as well i, I yeah i definitely think that we maybe need to expand our thinking beyond our our own borders yeah, I definitely agree with everything Matt said there. I, I think when it comes to mask wearing, I just think it's such a small thing to ask that, you know, no, staying in, staying indoors and, you know, is one thing and, and not going outside and not seeing your family is one thing. But I think, you know, mask wearing and vaccines are such a small ask that I think I think it's a shame that not everyone feels that they, they need to do those things. Um, I guess the point I wanted to make was that, you know, COVID is not the only endemic respiratory, potentially deadly respiratory disease, right? Like the flu has been around for hundreds of years and immunocompromised people have had to live with that this whole time. So I, I guess at what point does COVID become like the flu? Because it has to happen at some point, right? We're not going to eradicate this disease now at this point because we've messed that opportunity up. So at some point we have to get it to the point where COVID is treated the same as something like the flu and and maybe this is the right point for that maybe a year's time would make more sense but i guess that's the point i want to make that that if we are going to back to something like normal then this is an inevitability right i don't see what the alternative is yeah from speaking to nick you know like it is true that there has been other respiratory pathogens around for a long time and he made the point that he does take extra precautions in winter because you know he has to but I guess looking at case numbers, they are still pretty high. Um, and I think COVID just feels like a much more immediately scary thing for him and other people in his community. But you, you're right, Emma, you know, like at what point do we loosen the reins? Because, you know, it has to happen at some point. And I guess we're also kind of figuring out what endemic looks like for COVID. I guess it's about calibrating your level of personal risk, right? But I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Matt will have a better idea than I do of what the average number of daily cases of flu are during a winter outbreak and how they compare to what we... Because the problem with COVID is that we're obviously getting these figures every single day published in the news and things like that. But without the context for, you know, X X thousand people have got flu, X thousand people have got 
the common cold today, it, it's really hard to calibrate your level of risk and like what was acceptable to us before versus what's acceptable to us now when we have no way of making that comparison because I would just go out in the winter quite happily despite the fact that dozens of people on the tube carriage that I was in probably had respiratory diseases that I was at risk of catching. Um, so yeah, I guess we just don't have the information that we need to calibrate our level of risk yet and that's a real challenge, I think. Well, I Also, I think one of the interesting dynamics of this conversation we're having now is that um as james said we were so attuned to the genuinely very high um you know levels of risk and disease burden that that were that there were especially early on in the pandemic especially before we have vaccines because you know i guess it's really worth understating that especially if you've been triple dosed and you're able to your protection against severe illness and hospitalization really is very high and that's a remarkable thing and just underlines why everyone should get a vaccine but perhaps we for me almost the question is well yes in a pandemic Sadly, there is going to be like an excess number of deaths. The question is, which of those deaths are preventable? Which should we have stopped? And certainly, if you look at the UK response, it's extremely hard to justify a situation like discharging COVID positive people into care homes, which you know obviously increase the burden of disease and death for those people to a to a huge amount unnecessarily. And I and I almost wonder that like when we reflect on this period of time. Is it this situation now and like relaxing the restrictions at this point we are, uh, uh, you know, at this point in the pandemic, that we reflect on as a bad decision or some of those decisions made, you know, earlier on? Also, not locking down, you know, in October or November um, you know, at the start of the alpha wave, which is when, uh, you know, deaths in the UK started to peak. You know, I, I wonder if some of what we're feeling now is this kind of anger at this mismanagement of these deadliest parts of the pandemic when perhaps... You know, not to be like extremely savage, but like in terms of pure deaths, the stakes are probably not not as high now. But there are some terrible decisions made in the past, and I I just hope that like like we focus on those and like not making those mistakes again. Because um, you know it seems to me that we haven't necessarily had as good a conversation about some of the absolutely terrible decisions that happened earlier on in the pandemic too. Yeah, and it's probably true to say that um, given all of that, that there are still more people who will die from COVID in the future than have died so far. And there's an awful lot of um, soul searching and political head scratching to do in terms of inquiries and reviews into individual government responses and global responses. Um, We're nowhere near out of this yet, even if we can go about our daily lives normal-ish, even if we do get emails from employers or push notifications on our phones telling us we've been close contacts of people with COVID. It's a strange period to grapple with, and we'd love to hear how you're handling it where you live. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the show this week. And that's us done for the show this week. Nothing in the podcast inbox, which is very sad. So please do get in touch. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your emails. We'll be back again same time next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.